0: Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, concerns over security, state secrets, and confidential sources. That affidavit that led to the search of former President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago shows the deep concern the FBI had about national security. We'll get the latest. Plus, cracking down on text cheats. The IRS is about to get thousands of new agents. But some of the criticisms of the agency and what it's about to do aren't quite true we'll fact check some of those claims also a close look at the polls and how Democrats now have at least some sense of optimism heading into the midterms and the tailpipe is about to go the way of the horse and buggy as multiple states prepare to ban the sale of combustion-powered cars all of that this hour, but we begin with that largely blacked out affidavit used to justify the FBI search of former President Trump's Florida estate. Elisa Jaffe spoke with ABC's Justin Finch about the details revealing the seriousness of the government's concerns.
1: Justin, as we dig into this heavily redacted FBI affidavit that was released today, we're seeing that they say that 14 of the 15 boxes that were recovered from former President Trump's estate earlier this year contained classified documents, several of them top secret, and that those were mixed in with newspaper articles and magazines and some things had President Trump's writing on them.
2: And that's right. And and those boxes were collected back in January, not even the ones that were collected back on August 8th. So in that batch of documents, that 184 total documents, we do know from those boxes, 67 were marked confidential, 92 were marked secret, 25 marked top secret. These are the kind of documents that we're really raising concerns with National Archives as well as the Justice Department because of the sensitivity of what was in there from the techniques used to gather that intelligence, the sources, many of them, human beings, spies out there among us, and the, the concern was Could they in turn be jeopardized? And also, could this in any way impact or jeopardize national security? And so uh, National Archives have been reaching out to uh, the Trump team uh, specifically for concerns that there may be more documents out there. There was reason to believe there were more and that they could possibly be obstructed in some kind of way. That led DOJ to really push very hard to Get that affidavit, get their case, and get that search warrant to go into Mar-a-Lago and retrieve any more documents of that nature that may have still been there. And we now know that twelve additional boxes were recovered as a result of that affidavit, which we now have, which is heavily redacted, but does speak to uh, the the case that was being built here, which was there were documents that were beyond the White House and the protected environment where they're normally viewed and kept and at mar-a-lago an unsecured place they just didn't know where those documents may have gone who may have seen them and what kind of risk the country and those sources were now could now possibly be in.
1: Yeah, when you say unsecured, explain their concerns about the storage of this classified material at Mar-a-Lago.
2: That's right. You know, you see in the affidavit that they were kind of focused on areas where the documents could be stored, such as uh, an office the former president had designated, as well as a storage facility. We have seen that camera view that shows uh, a hallway outside that storage area, which is also at the Mar-a-Lago estate, which also doubles as a close and uh, a place for a guest to stay so at any time you can have all kinds of people pouring through And that knowledge does not sit well with those whose job it is to protect that kind of information.
1: What is the Trump team saying today?
2: They're calling it overtly political. They're calling it uh, something that they believe the former president is being targeted because he could be running for office soon. Trump's sons are kind of mocking the transparency with all of the uh, redactions in the document for for those who know more about the the law and the inner workings of how all this stuff works you know they are saying this really does uh speak to uh, some concerning points that are, are worth exploring and getting into one question is though why the urgency in releasing this affidavit so quickly Could we have learned more had it been released later or at a different point in the investigation? That we don't know at this time either. ABC's
0: Justin Finch. Thank you so much, Justin. That's Elisa Jaffe. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, a look at the polls and why this fall may not have the red wave that everyone was expecting when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podolo. Well, it is the end of August, and once Labor Day happens, then the campaigning really begins. And whenever the campaigning begins, so does the polling. And we have a couple of tight races, not only for Congress here in this state, but for the state legislature as well. And we figured we'd talk to an expert on all of this, and that is Stuart Elway of the Crosscut Elway Poll. And I guess before we get into some of the specifics about various races, we've seen a a significant change in what's called the generic ballot which is do you plan to vote for a Republican or a Democrat this fall over the last several months haven't we
3: yes we have uh, and we've seen it here in Washington and uh, we've seen it nationally the the generic congressional poll nationally has tightened up uh, in some places where it's a dead even uh, in, in some polls now and the 538 uh, website, Uh, now has the Democrats with about a 60-plus percent chance of holding on to the Senate, which uh, six months ago uh, was about 30 percent.
0: What caused the change? What's different?
3: Well, what's what's being attributed is the uh, Supreme Court decision that came down, primarily the one, the Dobbs decision on abortion just saw some articles this morning showing a a national upsurge in women registering to vote. We saw the the Kansas uh, referendum election, which caught everybody by surprise. Uh, There have been some congressional races uh, recently, uh, special elections and so on that are not looking at all like the red wave that everyone was talking about the first of the year. Last six months ago, all the conversation was about how big the Republican victory was going to be this year, uh, particularly in, their, in Congress. And and here in Washington, the um, House Republicans particularly were very optimistic with uh, the quality of the candidates they had and competitive districts and really felt that they had a, a good shot. And as of today, and of course, we still got, what, 80, 90 days to go which, as we always like to say, is an eternity in politics. Um, But um, that red wave has um, pretty much dissipated to uh, a toss up at best in terms of the party competition.
0: You talk about that red wave. We see this sort of in every midterm election cycle the incumbent president seems to lose seats. It happened with Donald Trump, it happened with Barack Obama, it happened with George W. Bush, certainly happened with Bill Clinton. Are we still expecting that? Are we still expecting Republicans to pick up seats even if they don't say gain control of the Senate or House?
3: The expectations uh, nationally are still in that Direction uh, in the House, in the Senate, um, not so sure. The, the latest readings, as I as I said, uh, are indicating that the the Democrats have a better chance of holding on and even adding to their Senate majority than than they did. But in the House, it's structurally so uh, difficult that is the way the districts are drawn and the candidates and so on that, that are chosen, um, it, may, it makes it more difficult. So odds are still that the Republicans will hold the House. But, you know, you're right. It, it, the, the, the party in the White House has only picked up seats about three times in, the, in, the, in this century, in the last, you know, last hundred years or so during the midterm. So the, the historical odds are against it. But every election's a different election. So we'll see what happens.
0: With regards to the Senate, it, it, Seems to be mostly who is up for re election this year. But yeah. the, the one state that seems to surprise me the most is Georgia. You had Stacey Abrams and her incredible get out the vote campaign in 2020, elected two Democrats in Georgia, first time in a long time. And now it looks like Raphael Warnock is leading, although not by much, Herschel Walker, Trump's hand picked candidate there. How often do you see Democrats win in, in the Deep South like that?
3: Well, that, uh, not often as you point out and um again it's it's uh, uh quality of the candidates matters i mean you know candidates and campaigns matter we talk about these historic trends and all of that but when it comes down to it it's you know it's individual voters making a number of choices about individual candidates and it's not you know it's not mahatma gandhi against adolf hitler it's it's warnock versus walker <laughs> or it's it's murray versus smiley in this state um so it, they're individual choices so those things do matter, And he, as even um, Mitch McConnell said the other day, uh, the quality of the candidates is hurting the Republicans this year. And, and in the Senate, that's happened the last couple of times. They had some out of the mainstream candidates running on uh, the last cycle, too. It cost, them, cost the Republicans some seats they thought they could have had. And if it, if they don't pick up the Senate this time, uh, they'll be pointing to the same thing. And and, and the Walker-Warnock race is a good when Herschel Walker is clearly not qualified. But he's got the R by his name and he's got Trump uh, behind him. So that's going to make it a close race. If if, if, the, if it were not the case, uh, I don't think that race would be close.
0: We're talking with Stuart Elway. He is the head of the Crosscut Elway Poll, and been in politics a long time, knows how to sample the public. And, and you bring it back to Washington State, looking at that Murray versus Smiley race, the race for Senate, no one's really expecting Tiffany Smiley to have much of a chance. You mentioned the idea of having good candidates the quality of candidates she doesn't seem like the the best pick to run for the republicans
3: well a couple of things uh, you know we haven't elected a republican us senator here in a couple of generations so she's got that uphill battle to start with You know, she's an attractive candidate. Her TV ads look good. She presents well. She's articulate. She's got some issues that she wants to campaign on. One of the problems is the issues that she wants to campaign on are not popular issues here in Washington state. And she's got a a past affiliation uh, with Trump, which she's not going to be talking about. But Patty Murray is going to be talking about that a lot. Uh, I think Patty Murray is going to run those pictures of Smiley and Trump together, uh, you know, quite a bit. And we won't hear Smiley talking about that because this is Washington and Trump got about a third of the vote here last time. So she's not the best candidate at this time. Again, you know, it's a combination of sort of historical trends and political currents plus the individuals who are actually running. Back in January when we polled in this race, we, the, we didn't have Smiley in the race yet. So the question was, would you vote for Patty Murray or her Republican challenger? And Patty Murray won that hypothetical race by three points. So she looked vulnerable. And the, and the Republicans got pretty excited. Uh, the, maybe there's a chance to knock Patty Murray off. And then the, the flesh and blood candidate shows up and it's um, Tiffany Smiley. And in July... Murray versus Smiley. Murray is ahead in the poll by thirty points.
0: That is a significant margin. You don't see that. Yeah, you don't see that at all.
3: But you know, I look back, and um, first of all, Patty Murray has never really polled that strongly in the old days. Scoop Jackson and Magnuson used to win by you know eighty percent around here. Well, that hasn't happened in a long time, Um, and Murray always polls better when the republican candidate is named than when we when then when we pit her against a generic republican so again the the, the candidates do matter so yeah and, and there have been other polls that show that same swing over the last six months or so and then 30 points is a large large margin to overcome.
0: What about some of the congressional races here and obviously polling is a lot easier for the senate you're polling statewide congressional races especially since redistricting a bit a little bit more of a challenge but we have two sort of bellwether districts here: the eighth, Kim Schreier versus Matt Larkin, and then down in the third in Southwest Washington, Jamie Herrera Butler was ousted in the primary, and now you have a wide open seat.
3: Both of those districts have switched parties uh, in the last, well, in, in recent memory, let's say. Uh, the the other districts in the state uh, haven't switched parties in a long time, but both of those have. So they they uh, the eighth district was drawn to be more of a swing district than it was. Last time, and Schreier won by a, a fairly narrow margin last time. Butler, Herrera uh, Butler, you know, carried the district last time by, what, four or five points. But then because of our top two primary, um, she gets booted and by a candidate who is a, a fairly strong, adamant election denier, Trump supporter. So the, the that question— That being Joe Kent. Um, so the question is whether that district, you know, will stay. It was drawn to be a little more Republican, uh, thinking that you know, they were making it safer for Herrera Butler. So the, how does that hold up now with um, a, a Trump Republican as a standard bearer? And so that's going to be a fascinating race to watch because uh, that district in, it with, with different boundaries was held. By Democrats for a long time, Brian Baird held that for a long time. So uh, that that'll be a real bellwether. And the eighth district, as I say, will be close because it was close last time, and it, and the new district boundaries seem to make it even closer. So both of those will be tight.
0: Are we uh, expecting a lot of polling in in these two districts? Well,
3: I, I expect some. I I don't think I'm going to be doing any. Um, but we're only going to do one more poll before the election. There may be some that go in there. I, I'm sure the candidates themselves are are doing polling, but you and I will never see those. I don't know. I don't know if the, if somebody else might do uh, you know a public poll in those races.
0: With that lack of polling, particularly in the third district, which has been pretty safe for Republicans for the last decade, how do you? kind of gauge the way people are feeling and, and, and way the way the district might go because no one really paid attention to that district until Herrera Butler was ousted in the primary over her vote to impeach Trump
3: well yeah yeah for um, it makes it hard for you know doing your job to try, <laughs> certainly to try to, to try to suss that out and it's you know back to the old-fashioned ways of uh, I guess calling around if, if anything there'll, there'll be maybe one public poll. In that race, and I don't know that that's even going to happen. But the candidates themselves will be doing polling, and so they'll have a sense of where they want their, where their voters are, and what the messengers are that are working, and and all of that. So, and sort of uh, secondarily, you can watch what they're doing and get a sense of what their polls are showing. I don't mean mean to sound that they're totally poll driven, but they are not sailing into these uncharted waters without radar. So those candidates will be doing polls.
0: On a broader note, how confident are you in polling as an institution? Because six years ago in 2016, a lot of the pollsters missed Donald Trump and, and undercounted for the support that he had. There was a lot of changing in methodology since then. Uh, are you confident that the polls are still accurately reflecting the mood of the public, whether it's your poll, whether it's someone else's poll, or, or polling in general?
3: Well, I do, but I do certainly uh, know that you know, things are in flux. Polling is you know, has gotten harder to do with... Uh, uh, caller id and cell phones and all of the new technology it makes it harder uh, to do a good poll so that's a constant challenge the industry is is constantly trying to um, catch up and modify um, procedures and methods to to make sure that that happens and the, the other part of it you know is that i and this might sound odd for a pollster to say but we we've, we've come to the place where polls are too much of the story. There was something like, you know, 5,000 <laughs> polls done in the last presidential election. We're missing what's really going on by watching the scorecard all the time. Um, okay. and, and polls really can't predict the future. And, you know, we say that all, uh, uh, us pollsters say that till we're blue in the face. That's a snapshot in time. We can't predict the future. No one can. Things change. Uh, Polls have uh, inherent limitations in their ability to measure the public. And as as polls have become more prominent as part of our coverage and attention to political races, the expectations on them have become higher and to an extent that that they can't meet. It's just not uh, possible. We're doing we're doing a sample. And sometimes it misses. And, but, but none of that is to say that there weren't some systematic misses a few years ago when, when Trump got uh, underestimated. And that's largely because people who voted for Trump disproportionately were people who are hard to reach by tele- by telephone polls or don't answer telephone surveys and so we'll do our sampling and match it all up and and if people who don't answer the poll are systematically different from people who do answer the poll that's when we have trouble with the poll if if there's if, if there's not a difference then it doesn't matter so much but it, it looks like and with Trump especially That there has been a systematic difference.
0: All right, pollster Stuart Elway, thank you so much for your time and insight. Always good to talk to you.
3: Glad to do it. We have to take another break, but coming
0: up, is the IRS really coming after you? We'll fact check some of the claims made by Republican members of Congress when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The Internal Revenue Service says it is conducting a comprehensive review of its security systems amid recent threats against its employees. Now, some of the rhetoric comes after many Republican lawmakers have claimed without evidence that the $78 billion being sent to the IRS over the next decade is so that more agents can be hired to audit the middle class. Joining us now is ABC's Andy Field. And so what is this about threats to IRS agents and what do the GOP members of congress have to do with it.
4: Well, not only that, but it's going on to social media where primarily conservatives, republicans, far right groups are making false claims uh, by posting an ad for one of these IRS agents that said you have to be in good physical shape and be willing to carry a gun. Well, they exponentially uh, put that to every agent will have to do that. Uh, This was even published in the Rupert-owned New York Post. It was a complete lie. There there is a job in the IRS that is like a Secret Service agent except for the IRS where you do carry a gun, but you're a law enforcement officer and you are only called in in cases where there is potential violence or if uh, there's a case being involved with the drug dealer or a criminal where they actually need to be prepared for violence. And then those IRS agents with the green eye shades uh, sitting behind their calculators and their desk uh, <laughs> looking a bit nerdy and not anywhere close to the Rambo-like officer that the Republicans are trying to make them out to be uh, has to have to call in the, the their special forces. And so – There are very few of those agents. And by the way, this is these agents were created by a law in Congress that Republicans and Democrats voted for a long time ago. Uh, So now there are threats against the IRS saying they're coming for every dime you have. It's frightening to the people who work in the IRS who were probably the most anonymous people on the planet, if not in the United States, until this came up here. Uh, Republicans are saying, gee, what do we need to add 80 some odd thousand new agents? All they're going to do is come and take your money. Well, that's exactly their job to make sure that Americans pay their fair share. It's like saying, what do we need police officers for in our streets? Because all they're going to do is stop you from running red lights. So The laws passed. There's going to be more agents out there. The IRS commissioner has pledged, as well as uh, President Biden, that they're going to go after the deepest pockets. And those are people who make over $400,000 a year and who have managed to successfully evade taxes. They want to get sharp-eyed accountants in there to say, hey, you can't do this and hand over your taxes. And that includes some of the corporations who've been very good and pay their lawyers lots of money to make sure that they pay the least amount of taxes.
0: This was all part of the Inflation Reduction Act, and and the GOP criticism, at least one of them, was that this 87,000 new hires for the IRS, is there
4: any truth to that number at all? Uh, we don't know the exact number. I mean, that, that was an estimate given when they passed this bill here, but it's up to the IRS to decide how many people they're going to hire and where they're going to put them. But the vast majority of them are going to be either in customer service, when you have a problem with the IRS, and you call and you go, You'll be on hold now for 13 days and four hours. They're hoping to cut that time down just a little bit. That's number one. Uh, They're also going to have compliance folks, the people who do the auditing, uh, the people who handle your return, the people who have to hand look at some things Uh, Even in this day and age when most people file electronically, there's still a lot of people who don't, which is why that takes so long to get your refund and such. So the IRS has been understaffed for decades, according to some experts here in in Washington, and this is supposed to help alleviate some of that problem. And the Democrats who pass this bill say it's a good return on the investment if uh, one of those agents manages to bring in X millions of dollars or a few of the agents manage to bring in billions in taxes that weren't collected before, then it will more than pay for itself and actually generate more revenue for the U.S. Treasury.
0: And as you mentioned, Republican criticism is that they're going after you. They're going after everyday Americans uh, to take, as you said, any every dime that you have. But if you did your taxes right, you shouldn't really have anything to worry about because this is this is about, I, I hate to use the term because it's so loaded, but paying your fair share, paying the taxes that you owe and cracking down on people that game the system, correct?
4: That's what they tell us. That's what they say that this is all about here. And the vast majority of people, look, if, why would you go after people, especially low-income folks uh, who pay very little tax to begin with, to squeeze another 500 bucks out of them. It, there, there, there doesn't seem to be a cost-benefit analysis in that. But if you're going after someone who's making 400,000-plus or millions a year, and they've avoided several million dollars in taxes, well, there seems to be a cost-benefit in doing that. And it would make sense that that's where they're going after. And, of course, that's what the IRS commissioner and the president says – is what they're going to do.
0: Do we happen to know how many people cheat on their taxes?
4: Well, that's a, that's a tough one because the fact that they're not catching them <laughs> means that we don't know the answer to that. But uh, there are there have been estimates that, that the government loses uh, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars a year in taxes that should have been paid and were not paid, uh, whether it's in the gig economy where people get paid under the table and they just don't report the income. To companies who are very good at gaming the system uh, and uh, using the tax laws the way they are to make sure they don't uh, pay their fair share. And that's what President Biden wants to change. That's what Democrats want to change. And that's what virtually every Republican in Congress voted against.
0: So back to this idea of security, the IRS obviously worried about the extreme right wing that that is coming after them, the the threats against their agents. What exactly are they doing? How are they beefing up security for these new hires?
4: Well, first they have to decide where the problems are and and what do they need to reinforce. So uh, you remember the Oklahoma City bombing where Timothy McVeigh managed to drive a fertilizer truck out in front of the building and blow the whole front of it off and kill a whole lot of people there and just do untold damage that one act by timothy mcveigh back then in 1995 when 168 people died that changed security in every single federal building from there on washington dc became an armed and concrete fortress after that used to be able to walk around the entire perimeter of the white house along the avenues He can no longer do that because of Timothy McVeigh. And so now that we have this far-right fanaticism uh, threatening the IRS, the FBI, they're now having to look into this and see, well, what do we need to do now to protect our people? And we may see more reinforcements. We may see more costs involved in putting more police on the beat to protect these people. It's it's um, it's a sad comment on our times.
0: We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, erasing student debt, the plan that was finally approved by the president, as well as some of the Republican criticism when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Millions of Americans facing mounting student loan debt are about to have their balances wiped clean following a debt relief announcement from the White House. Danielle douglas Gabriel covers for the Washington Post and she put together a series of articles on who qualifies for relief and who doesn't, as well as other ways to get your student loans forgiven. She spoke with Taylor Van Sice. What kind of requirements,
5: Danielle, does a person need to meet in order to take advantage of the debt relief?
6: Well, you have to, as an individual, earn less than $125,000 a year, and that's based on your grow- adjusted gross income, and as a family, less than $250,000 a year for the 10000 Now, if you also uh, were a Pell Grant recipient, this is a grant primarily for low-income college students in their undergraduate years, mainly those from families earning less than 60000 Half of them earn less than 30000 Well, those recipients will actually get an additional $10,000 for a total of $20,000 in debt cancellation.
5: Now, as far as what kind of uh, work that uh, a, a debtor has to put in to take advantage of this, is this an extensive process to try and qualify?
6: The Department of Education say, is saying that it's not. So the department has the income information for about 8 million borrowers, and those 8 million borrowers will receive automatic loan forgiveness The rest of folks who are eligible for loan forgiveness will have to submit what I'm being told is a very short attestation form just certifying their income, um, and that is how they will be able to get loan forgiveness. That form is not out yet, but should be out within the next month or so.
5: Looking at the calendar, Danielle, it's about the time where college students are returning to campus, depending on whether you know they're on the quarter or semester system, um, which means new student loans being taken out. Are any of these new loans uh, for this school year going to be eligible for the debt relief?
6: So only loans that were originated by the federal government before July 1st are eligible for this form of relief.
5: Okay, so kind of look at that paperwork closely. Uh, And you also put together an article on um, 10 other ways that you can get your student loans forgiven, Uh, and these include military service as well, but but others, are these niche programs or could a large portion of the country be taking advantage of these other strategies and not even know it?
6: Definitely niche. I mean, the, the ones like public service loan forgiveness, I would say probably has a broader uh, population that could benefit from it because these this program is directed towards social workers, teachers, firefighters, police officers. People who work in the public sector for at least 10 years um, and are making payments on their loans, after the 10 years, they can qualify for forgiveness. It's not the easiest program to navigate, but the Department of Education is working on that. But I would also encourage your listeners to look at what state programs are available for loan forgiveness. Many states also have loan forgiveness programs or repayment programs for, to try to fill high-need uh, areas, particularly in public health, uh, social workers, teachers also firefighters that can get uh, state loan forgiveness or repayment if they are willing to commit two or three years of their time to that profession.
5: Great batch of articles you whipped up today, Danielle. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel with us here on Northwest News Radio. WashingtonPost.com is where you can go to find all of these articles. Uh, They were right there on the homepage this morning. You can also go to the education section there for the paper. WashingtonPost.com.
0: That's Taylor Van Seis. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, making the combustion engine obsolete with a little help from some of the most progressive states when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, California plans to require all new vehicles run on electricity or hydrogen by 2035 under a policy approved by regulators this week. And Governor Inslee tweeted that Washington state is ready to adopt California's regulations by the end of this year. ABC's Alex Stone tells Elisa Jaffe what a ban on new gasoline-powered cars and trucks will mean to consumers and the rest of the country.
1: So within 13 years, Alex, only new electric cars will be available for Californians to buy. And your governor is calling a ban of new gasoline-powered cars a historic win against climate change. This is a
3: big, game-changing decision that's going to move markets nationally and internationally. We're going to radically change the way people drive.
1: It is a huge deal, Alex. Break it down for us and how long before other states might follow suit. Yeah, this is at least a
7: really big deal. Whether or not you agree with getting rid of, of gas-powered vehicles, California holds an incredible amount of power in the auto industry in the U.S., 40 million residents. If California were a country, it would be the fifth largest economy anywhere in the world. So when California makes a rule change like this, it changes it for everybody. Automakers have to go along with it, and they don't make one type of vehicle for California and another uh, elsewhere. They have to go along with it for everybody. And with and We have seen that in the past, and we're likely going to see that again now. So about a dozen, Newsom said 17, but normally around a dozen. Other uh, liberal-run states usually follow in whatever California does with environmental rules. So California does it. Probably others are going to do it. Then you get a big chunk of the the country doing it, and automakers uh, then have to go along with it. So today there were hours of public comment from those like board members who heavily support the new
6: rule. This is a historic moment for California for our partner states and for the world as we set forth this path towards a zero-emission future. The
7: auto industry, especially Ford, saying this is a moment that they fully embraced Toyota for a long time, fought California on these rules. Now Toyota is uh, going along with it. So generally as an industry, they're saying, yeah, let's do it. And the industry saying this.
3: This is an historic day. The advanced clean car regulations are the most sweeping, transformative regulations in the history of the automobile industry.
7: But, Elisa, the industry testifying that while they support it, we heard over and over again from Mercedes and Kia and others, they have worry, is the technology there yet and the ability for everybody to be able to afford an electric vehicle by 2035, and that they don't know. We
3: can build electric vehicles. But can consumers afford them? Can they conveniently fuel them? Is the battery supply chain sufficient? And perhaps most important, do equity communities, low income communities, have the same access to? home charging that, that the more affluent people buying EVs today
7: do. And that's the thing, California's low-income and farming communities, they testified today that electric cars are just too expensive. They're not conducive to what they need to do. The current
3: cost of
6: EVs make them affordable for a large portion of our population. But the
7: board saying today and the regulators that there are and will be incentives and the prices are coming down. And at least this was put on hold for the, the last two years. Governor Newsom was the one who signed an executive order in 2020, demanding that this go on. But the Trump administration said no way. They blocked it. There were a number of court cases. And now the green light has come. You talked about Newsom there a moment ago. He says this is about more than the environment, but getting away from gas prices and uh, the Middle East running uh, uh, our pocketbooks and what we're paying to to fill up. And one number that stuck out to me today, Lisa, 43 percent of zero emission vehicles in the U.S. are right here in California. So people here are so used to A lot of vehicles, many of them now are Tesla or something else. And you go elsewhere, you go to middle America, it's not that common to see electric vehicles. But for Californians, it's kind of like, well, all right, Uh, so many people own them already.
1: Anyway, elsewhere, it would be a very big deal. ABC's Alex Stone. Thank you, Alex.
0: And that's Elisa Jaffe, and that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.